Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning on this Christ the King Sunday. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll look together this morning at verses 31 to 46. Matthew 25, let's read together verses 31 to 46. This is God's holy word for us, his people, this morning. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they, will, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are the words of Jesus, and this is the word of God for us this morning. Let's just ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, thank you for the gift of scripture. We ask that you would open our eyes and give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Your truth today. Write the truth of the words of your Son upon our hearts. And let us leave here, not just with a little more knowledge of the Bible, but with a little more of the likeness of Christ. With more faith, more sensitivity to sin, more eagerness and watchfulness for the return of our King. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may not know this, but next Sunday is Christian New Year's. (laughs) 
we have a church calendar of the liturgical year. And December 3rd may not feel like New Year's Day, but it is. <laughs> it is the beginning of Advent and the starting over of our liturgical cycle and the Christian year. So this week is the end of the Christian year, the last Sunday before Advent. It's important for us to set aside a day on the liturgical calendar on which we specifically focus as a church on the kingship of Jesus. And I can think of at least three reasons for why Christ the King Sunday is a very important day for us to have on the calendar. First reason that this is important today, it does not look like Jesus is on the throne when you think about the state of our world. Turn on the news, hear what's going on, whether it's here or in some other country, and you get the impression that it doesn't look like anybody's in charge up there. It's easy to fall into that. You know, I had a, I had a professor at Liberty University, and he was out one day, Dr. Ice. He was, he was out one day. And his son, who was in the graduate school, I was an undergrad, his son was in the graduate program in the seminary, and he was filling in for his dad as our teacher that day, which was just awful. <laughs> he had no business teaching a class. And he, we were talking about Jesus as king. Is he king now? Is he not king? And I asked, him, I asked him a question. I said, but doesn't the New Testament tell us that Jesus is king now, not just one day way off sometime in the future? Isn't he like our king now? And not, not Dr. Ice, he never said this, but his son said, and I quote, if Jesus is king now, he's doing a terrible, lousy job. Yeah. So... I've, I'll never forget that moment because it was so stunning and so shocking. And I, and I hope my fellow classmates also felt how, how shocking it was to say such a thing. But why did he say that? Because if you look around at the world, at the culture, and that was in, you know, that was like, I was in college between 2005 and 2010. That was like in 2006, you know, 7, 8, you know. And things, maybe, maybe at that time you thought they were as bad as they could get. <laughs> And it's just easy to look at the world and think, if Jesus is king now, boy, he needs, you know, we need to take a vote and get, a, get somebody else, a new administration or something. It's easy to fall into that temptation, not just as a secular person, but as a Christian in seminary at Liberty University. It's possible to think that. So this day on the calendar is meant to remind us that Jesus has not lost control of his world. God is working out his purposes in this fallen world through his providence, through his church. And so we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Like we sing in, the, in that song, uh, this is my father's world. And though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Christ the king is meant to remind us of that. A second reason this is really important. Given the state of our world... The church still has a job to do. Yes, we should trust in the Lord. And out of that place of trust and faith, we then should busy ourselves with obedience. 
Christ is king of this world now, but there are places yet where his banner does not fly. There are places yet still in rebellion against his rightful claim. The crown rights of Christ are refused by the nations to this day. And so we are called not just to acknowledge that there's a king up there, but we're called to advance that kingdom in our lives, in our homes, in our world. And so we have a job to do. We are called to bring the light in the midst of this present darkness. We have a job to do. Spreading the gospel, standing for the truth, fighting for justice, reaching the lost, and loving the least. And the third reason it's important that we acknowledge this day on the calendar is that this kingdom that we're advancing will not be fully and finally present until Jesus returns to finish the job himself. We're called to advance a kingdom, but we will not be the ones who finish that task. Jesus himself will come when the Great Commission is finished and we've discipled the nations as much as they can be in this fallen world, this side of the second coming, but we have our eyes set on a day set on the horizon, not just looking down at our messy world, but lift your eyes, Christian, up off this world and look to the horizon and know that the king is coming. So we've got to set our sights there. We've got to lift our eyes higher than just the turmoil and confusion that might be happening around us. This calls for watchfulness, hopeful, eager, alert, urgent watchfulness. That's what this day is about. It's about faith that there is still a king on the throne of heaven, about getting serious about advancing that kingdom now in this fallen world, but then looking and watching and waiting for the return of the king. The king is coming, and today we take a moment to remember that and remind ourselves of this great truth. Christ the King is the perfect way to finish the church year as we prepare to enter into the season of Advent where we look back at the first coming of the King and we look forward to the future coming of the King. Last week we began looking at the future reformation, we called it. The future reformation that Christ will accomplish in His second coming. That sermon was more of an overview of what will take place when Christ returns. But today, I want us to focus more specifically on the final judgment itself, that event itself that will take place when Christ returns. In our passage this morning, Jesus himself describes the judgment of the nations when he returns. And this judgment in our passage has three stages, and those will be our three main points today. And here they are. Number one, the arrival. The arrival of the king. Number two, the sorting. The sorting of the nations. And number three, the sentencing. The sentencing of the righteous and the wicked to their eternal destinies. And so we begin this morning with the first stage of that final judgment in our passage, which is the arrival. The arrival. Look with me at verse 31 of our text. Matthew 25, 31. 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus, the king, returns at last and he sets up his glorious throne. In this verse, Jesus describes how he begins his earthly reign in his eternal kingdom. Now remember, we don't agree with that professor's graduate level son at liberty, that if Jesus is king right now, he's doing a bad job, which means he can't be king now. We don't agree with that. So never forget that Jesus is king right now. He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine, Jesus says at the end of this book, the book of Matthew. So he already has the crown, he already has the throne, but it's at the Father's right hand. What this verse is about is that future reign of Christ where he returns and he sets up his kingdom visibly on the earth. That hasn't happened yet. And that's what he's describing. But by describing that future earthly throne, he's not saying he's not king until then. That's not the implication. This passage is about the beginning of that future reign in that future earthly kingdom. But the heavenly kingdom where Jesus rules as king at the right hand of the Father, that is already here. So never forget that. We're talking about the future earthly reign of Jesus. So, in this first verse, we learn two things about the arrival. Two things about the arrival in verse 31. Number one, the arrival will be glorious. The arrival will be glorious. Jesus says, the Son of Man comes in his glory, and then it says he will sit on his glorious throne. Glory is twice in the verse. He comes in glory and he sits on a glorious throne. The arrival will be glorious. And this glory is the glory that is promised by God to the Messiah. This is a messianic, royal, kingly glory. If we go back in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus says... For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. In the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. So He comes in His glory in 2531. But in 1627 we learn this is the the glory that the Father has bestowed upon Him as King Messiah. As the Son of God. This glory of Jesus is put on display in the arrival. And that glory is given to him by God the Father. It is a divine, heavenly glory that is given to Jesus the Son. And in fact, in John chapter 5, and you can look this up later, John 5, 22 to 23, and then verse 27, John says that... Or excuse me, Jesus says that God the Father has given him the authority to be mankind's judge on the last day so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Father wants his glory and honor to be shared with his Son. 
And that's why today it's not a sin of idolatry for you to worship Jesus and to give him honor, divine honor, because it's God's will that you worship Father and Son together. You're not detracting from the glory of God when you worship Jesus and the Father. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2 that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is honored and magnified when you honor Him together with His Son. It is dishonoring to the Father when you refuse to honor Jesus. Jesus says... Whoever honors me honors the one who sent me. But whoever refuses to honor me dishonors the one who sent me. So father and son together are to be given worship and divine honor. That's part of this glory that Jesus is supposed to receive. This is the arrival will be glorious because God will put on display his own divine heavenly kingly majesty and honor and splendor. It will be on Jesus. The Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' face shines and his clothes are white like the sun, that's just a tiny glimpse of what it'll be like when the glory finally arrives. Jesus is given divine honor, divine splendor, and the very glory of God rests upon him. And so when he arrives, we will see that glory for what it is. His arrival will be glorious. Second thing about the arrival, the arrival will be glorious, but second, the arrival will be permanent. Permanent. Jesus here says he calls himself by a title. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. That Son of Man language we read in our Old Testament passage earlier, Daniel 7 The Son of Man will come. That Son of Man figure is the Messiah. That is the promise of God to the Messiah, of this permanent kingdom, that He will have eternal dominion over an everlasting kingdom. Why will that throne be so glorious? He comes in His glory and He sits on a glorious throne. What's going to be so glorious about that throne? It's going to be permanent. He will rule and reign over all things for all time. Of His kingdom there will be no end. And it will be a throne established above every nation of the world, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign over all forever. That's what Daniel chapter 7 says will happen for Jesus. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." That's the Son of Man. That's part of the glory of this throne. The arrival will be be glorious, but the arrival will be permanent. 
Jesus will come a second time, and he will arrive with heavenly glory, divine honor, a universal kingdom, and an everlasting throne. The return of Christ will be unlike anything the world has ever dreamed of. It will be unmatched and unparalleled, and it shall never end. This brings us to stage two of the final judgment. Stage one of the final judgment, the arrival of the king, the judge. Stage two. Stage two is the sorting of the nations. Look with me at verses 32 and 33 of our text, Matthew 25. Jesus says, Before him, before this Son of Man who has just arrived and who has just sat on his glorious throne, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Jesus will be seated on his throne for judgment. All the nations of earth, and not just the ones that exist at that time, but all the nations that have ever been. This is the great final judgment. This is everybody. All the nations, then, before, and ever. All of them will be gathered before him, and he will separate them into two groups. He says, the way a shepherd divides two different kinds of animals in his flock. Now, I called this point the sorting because it reminded me of Harry Potter. <laughs> I mentioned Interstellar last week, and none of you had seen it. Has anybody watched it since then? Oh, shameful. <laughs> That's too bad. Well, in Harry Potter, which you also haven't seen, I'm sure. In Harry Potter, there's a hat, a magical hat called the sorting hat. And as new students arrive to Hogwarts, they get sorted into their different houses where they will be for the rest of their time as a student there. Right? And so each one goes forward and they put on the hat. The hat can talk. <laughs> the sorting hat can talk. You put it on. And this hat is supposed to like look into the student's mind and heart and past and just sort of somehow magically evaluate this, this, this child. And then it will announce to the room... Which house the student's going to be in? Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, Slytherin. And then that's the house they're in for the rest of their time as a student there. The sorting is what this event's called. And it's the sorting hat that makes these decisions. The sorting hat. Now, here in Matthew 25, every person of every nation is brought forward one by one. And they each step up before the seat, before that throne, with Jesus standing there. Jesus is going to sort the nations. And he doesn't need to use a magic hat to do that. Jesus is able to look into the eyes of each person, and he is able to discern the absolute bottom depths of your mind, your heart, your soul, your conscience, and every millisecond of your existence, and everything you felt, thought, everything you intended, 
every sin, every righteous thing, all of it. He's able to look at you and he knows it all. And it's not magic. It's his power as the son of God to just know the human heart so perfectly and to know you so perfectly in everything you've done, thought, or said that he will know how to sort you. And there's not four houses that you go in while you're a student. There's not four places to go. There's two. You either get sorted to the right, the house of sheep, or you get sorted to the left, the house of goats. Like a shepherd can look at his flock. It doesn't matter how similar they look or how similar they sound. He knows the sheep from the goats. And he's able to say, you're a sheep over here. You're a goat over there. And he will know exactly where to sort you and where to put you. He knows right where you belong because he knows and can see right through you. The right hand was considered in that ancient culture as the place of honor. That's why Jesus is seated at God's right hand. It's that place of great honor. But the left hand was the place of dishonor. And the sheep go on the right, and the goats go on the left. The sheep here represent the righteous, who will receive a favorable judgment. And the goats are the wicked, who will receive an unfavorable judgment. Now before we get to the judgment itself, in point three, notice, notice three things about the sorting of the nations. This part doesn't come out as clearly and explicitly in our text, but if you put Matthew 25 in its larger context, it comes out crystal clear. First thing to notice about the sorting. The nations will resist the sorting. These nations will not come willingly before this throne. You think they want to get sorted? You think they want to bow the knee? You think they want to submit to Jesus when he arrives? These are not just the righteous in all the nations. These are also the wicked in the nations. These are the enemies of God, not just his followers. These are the enemies of God who oppose Jesus and his kingdom, and they will not go quietly, and they will not go down without a fight. So implicit here is the first round of judgment that these nations have to face, and it's the judgment of conquest, breaking the knees of those who refuse to bow. Psalm 2 is in the background here. Psalm 2 issues the solemn warning to the nations and their leaders that they must not oppose God's Messiah when he takes the throne. We won't have time to go through Psalm 2 now, but Psalm 2 details this, and it begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And they say, Let us cast off their cords from us. They want to rebel against the Lord and his anointed. But it says, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> he laughs at this rebellion. The nations enraged 
opposing his son. He just laughs. He holds them in derision, it says. And he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he says, ask of me, my son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. You will rule them with a rod of iron and crush them as a potter crushes his vessels. That's what's coming. And he says to these kings of these nations, Be warned, O kings of the earth. It says, Kiss the sun. I picture it like kissing the royal ring. It's doing homage. It's obeisance. It's submission. Submit to the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. That's Psalm 2's warning to the nations. The nations don't care about Psalm 2. They don't listen to it. And so if we back up in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, back to chapter 24, back to chapter 24, and look at verses 27 to 30, Jesus says this. Matthew 24, 27 to 30, he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This electrifying lightning strike is how he will come. And it says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is a deadly lightning strike that leaves the field littered with the bodies of the rebellious. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the, sun, and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The nations will resist the sorting, but he arrives. And this language of the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, that's Joel chapter 3. And again, we don't have time to go back through it, but this is a rich study to follow these references that Jesus is making. Go back to Joel chapter 3 and look at verses 9 to 17 where the prophet says, the nations will come and gather for war against the Messiah. But the lion of Judah will roar from Zion and he shall devour and overtake his enemies. The rebellion will be fierce, but they will be struck down. And then will come the sorting. Round one of the judgment of the nations is the smashing of the rebellion as they come against the Lord and his armies. But once they are defeated and vanquished and conquered, the nations will be brought for their sorting. This is unavoidable. Fight as the nations will. They cannot prevail. The nations will fight. They will resist. And they will be overwhelmingly defeated in a great final battle. And then once the nations are thoroughly subdued, they will be gathered for sorting before the throne of King Jesus. Three things about this sorting. That's number one. The sorting will be resisted by the nations, but they will be conquered. Second thing about the sorting, the sorting will be supernatural. Supernatural. 
notice we skipped something important, didn't we, in verse 31. Did you catch that? Look at verse 31 of our text again. We, missed, we skipped a detail, and that was very intentional. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him. <laughs> What's that about? Why does Jesus have a heavenly entourage escort Him in His arrival, in His return? What are these angels here to do? Certainly the angelic entourage will be part of the glory of the arrival, but what are they here to do? And Jesus explains that their job is to gather the nations for judgment and to carry out the sorting. Jesus is the judge. He's going to be seated on his throne, and each person will come to him, and he will decide sheep, goats, right, left, He'll make the decision, but who's actually there bringing these nations to him and then putting them in their place? It's these angels that come with him. And Jesus says this, again, back in chapter 24. We just read 27 through 30. Listen to verse 31. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So the angels will gather all of the elect in every nation, all of these sheep, all these righteous. They will be gathered from the four corners of the earth, the four winds, it says. But then earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 13, 41, Jesus says this, at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So they're gathering everybody, the righteous and the wicked, the elect and these lawless ones, the sheep and the goats. It's these angels who are collecting, gathering, and then sorting the people as Jesus commands and directs according to His will. The sorting will be resisted by the nations. The sorting will be supernatural in its administration. And then the third thing about this sorting, the nations will be sorted according to their works. According to their works. The final judgment is a judgment according to works, to the things we have done, to the deeds we have carried out, in the body, whether good or evil. And from one end of the Bible to the other, it is crystal clear this judgment is according to works. In our passage, more specifically, they will be judged, these nations will be judged as either a sheep or a goat based on how they have treated the people of God, the followers of Jesus. We see this in verses 35 through 40 where they go, Jesus goes through this list. I was hungry, you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. A stranger, prisoner, sick, and you ministered to me. And they will be surprised and say, well, Lord, when did we do any of this stuff? When, when, when were you ever sick, Jesus? When were you in prison and we were supposed to come visit you? When were, when were you hungry? And we brought you a meal. When did we do any of this stuff? Right? They're surprised. What do you mean this is what 
<laughs> we didn't do that. You're thinking of somebody else. And Jesus says, no, no. When you did it, in verse 40, the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. One of the least followers of Jesus. When you ministered to them, you ministered, without realizing it, to me. It was me you were serving, not just them. And then he repeats that same list to the goats in verses 42 to 44. And then he says to them in verse 45, he explains when they had the same question, we never knew you were sick or we would have done something or when were you naked and we gave you a pair of pants? So Jesus, what are you talking about? What kind of judgment is this? And he says in verse 45, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. When you refuse to minister to that needy Christian, you refuse to minister to me. Note here the solidarity between, the, between Jesus and his people. It's like when Paul was persecuting the, the Christians in the book of Acts, and he's blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus when he gets converted and goes from opposing Jesus to following Jesus. And what, is, uh, what does he say? What does Jesus say to him? He calls him by his Hebrew name, Saul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not just why are you persecuting Christians, why have you been persecuting me, Saul? The solidarity between Jesus and his people. This idea comes back from Daniel 7, that same old Son of Man chapter. Because in Daniel 7, he has been given a vision of this Son of Man. And at the, in the interpretation of that vision, at the end of that chapter, Daniel 7, we're told that the Son of Man represents the people of God. He stands for and represents the saints of the Most High. So he acts in their behalf. And how you treat them is how you treat him. We'll bring that into the New Testament. The church is the body of Christ. And so what you do to Christ's body, you do to Jesus, who's the head of the body. When the body is sick and you minister to it, you're ministering to him. When the body's in need and you minister to those needs, you minister to him. Serving them is serving him. And when Jesus judges me and you on that day. This isn't just them, the nations. This is us. We're in the nations. <laughs> We're getting judged that day too. You're going to have your turn where you walk up and face the king and you get sorted. Sheep, goats, righteous, wicked. You too will be sorted on that day. And when you are, Christian, he is going to examine the evidence of your life to see the reality of your heart. The standard of judgment that Jesus will use is how you treat each other. Jesus says that how you care for one another is his measure 
of how much you care about him. And that's why this will be surprising to people. When, Jesus, when did we see you naked or in prison or sick or hungry or, and, and, and refuse to minister to you? And he'll say, look how you treated my body. That's how you treated me. We are saved by faith alone. Make no mistake about it. That's the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But Jesus and the rest of the apostles and the Bible could not be more clear that a faith that does not lead you to love one another is not a saving faith. An empty profession of just, oh yeah, I believe, with no Christian life attached to it, just mere belief, just saying, yes, I believe that. And there's no love, there's no obedience, there's no change. It's just empty words. That is not a faith that ever saved anybody. And Jesus will see right through you on this day. Empty professions are exactly worthless. And he will look again, not you're going to get saved by feeding somebody who needs a meal. That's not what he's saying. He's going to look at the evidence. It's a judge in a trial, in a court. He's going to look at the evidence of the life to determine the reality of the heart. Is this a person who loves me? You can't say you love Christ if you don't love his body. We cannot say, oh yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't care one bit about any of these other stinking people around me in this room. <laughs> Jesus hasn't left that option open to us. It will be a, a judgment, a sorting that's according to works, where the evidence of our life lived following Jesus will tell him the reality of our hearts if we truly have trusted in him to be saved by faith alone. It's a judgment according to works, and faith can't be separated from works. No more than fire can be separated from its heat or its light. They have to go together. A burning, vibrant, living faith gives off the light of love and the heat of caring for and ministering to one another in this body. And that brings us to our third and final stage of the last judgment. The arrival, stage one of the king. The arrival of the king, stage one, is followed by stage two, the sorting of the nations. And once the nations have been judged and divided into the sheep and the goats, Jesus pronounces the sentencing. Point three, the sentencing. The eternal verdict that seals the destiny of every person. And he gives... Two verdicts, one to those on his right and one to those on his left. And let's just look at these together. One is a verdict of everlasting life and the other is a verdict of everlasting death. Those are the sentences. Verse 34 in our text. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the elect. 
who have been given a kingdom prepared for them from the very foundation of the world. Enter into the joy of your master. Come into the kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's where the sheep go, into everlasting life, into their inheritance, into their reward, into this glorious everlasting kingdom that Jesus will rule. That's where they belong. It was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. The kingdom was made with you in mind, Christian, as a place for you to be with him forever. What a glorious verdict that is. What a glorious sentence that is. To be sentenced to life with Jesus, (laughs) that's a good verdict. That's a gospel verdict. That's a glorious verdict. But the verdict for the unrighteous is the exact opposite. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46. These, the unrighteous, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is eternal punishment and eternal fire prepared and reserved. But look who it's prepared for. The devil and his angels. The kingdom was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. But the fire, the punishment was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for people. It wasn't made for you. It was prepared for someone else, the devil and his angels. And the only reason the unrighteous go there is because they choose to. And how do they choose to? They refuse to repent. They refuse to believe. They continue in that life of rebellion or that life of hypocrisy, saying, Lord, Lord, on Sunday, but there's no life with Jesus the other six days. Between the Sundays, Jesus has nothing to do with them and they have nothing to do with him. But on Sunday, bless God, here we are. The hypocrite and the unrighteous, the self-righteous, all in every kind and category of them. It wasn't prepared for them, but they will be there because they chose to be there by not repenting and not believing. That's where they go. And that's their eternal destiny. That's what their unrighteousness has deserved from the perfect justice of God. This is a message that is deeply offensive today. But Jesus is the one who said it. And we are his followers, and we believe his word. The righteous will go into eternal life, and the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment away from him. Christian, the king is coming. The king is coming. And this calls for a diligent faith that the king is on the throne now, ruling and reigning in his sovereign purposes. This calls for faith. The king is coming. And this calls for a diligent, persistent obedience advancing this kingdom. The kingdom is coming. And this calls for watchfulness. To set your eyes on that horizon when the arrival finally takes place, when the sorting happens, 
when the rebellion is put down, when the unrighteous are laid low, and when you get to go into that eternal kingdom and receive your inheritance from Jesus himself. Watch, Christian. Watch, be alert. Let the master find you busy in his business, advancing his kingdom when he comes. Do not let him find us being idle, but stay awake and keep alert and believe and obey and watch. The king is coming. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would write this truth on our hearts so that we would be alert and awake and not get sluggish and fall asleep in your service. We ask that you would convict us of those ways that we need to look and see who we can minister to. Increase our love for one another. Give us true, living, saving faith that's vibrant and burns with a passion to love you and trust you and follow you and also that moves us outward to love and minister to one another in all the ways that you've called us to do that. Oh, let the evidence and the fruit of our faith, the evidence and fruit of our salvation, which is by faith alone, let it be evident. Do not let our faith remain alone. But let us busy ourselves in your kingdom and let us always keep our eyes up, watchful, waiting, hoping, and eager for that day when the King, our Lord Jesus, finally returns. We ask it in his name. Amen.